Today's reading comes from Exodus 32, verses 1 through 14, the golden calf. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us. Who shall go before us? As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it in a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. To revel. The Lord said to Moses, Go down at once. Your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. And of you I will make a great nation." But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath, change your mind, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. The word of the Lord. This is a big deal, the story of the golden calf. Idolatry. The Talmud actually says there's nothing bad that happens, no misfortune in the whole world that doesn't have something of the sin of the golden calf in it. It seems a little bit hard to believe, but maybe not. Maybe the story does somehow reveal what is at the core of the problems of the world, the problems of yourself, the problems of you and your spouse, or your roommate, and capitalism, and Wall Street bankers, and disappointing governments, and drug addicts, and war, and global warming, and loneliness, and heartbreak? I don't know. But doesn't it make you feel like you want to understand what it is exactly? Or even
even inexactly would be fine, just some understanding. The people seem to be anxious. Moses has gone too long. If there's a living God out there, some beautiful, loving creator, liberator, it doesn't seem very real. And they want something that they can see and be near. Maybe they want a God that's a little more obvious. They definitely want something different than they think they're getting. And they've actually been kind of unhappy ever since they left Egypt. Where even though they were in slavery, they had homes and they understood how things worked. It was an oppressive reality where they made bricks, square, hard bricks every day to help build the empire that enslaved them. But they had lunch breaks. They didn't have a voice. They weren't free. But they had TVs. No, but they had meat, which actually becomes a running theme with them. Why did you take us out of Egypt where we had meat? The people aren't that happy, it doesn't seem, being liberated. They're scared, and they don't know what to do. Pharaoh finally let them leave, and then they're free. In the desert wilderness where there's not really any food or water or houses or flowers. And they get pretty suspicious, actually, about this God that led them out of Egypt into the wilderness, and they often say they wish they were back in Egypt where they could sit by their pots of meat. They suspect that God might have brought them out of slavery to kill them with hunger. I mean, it turns out that God does feed them, with manna and all these quails that walk into the camp at night in swarms. But they still don't feel safe, and they don't feel trust. And I have to say, the whole scene at Sinai wouldn't really go far towards helping them in this area, really. So they get to Sinai, where God's going to come down, actually, on the mountain in the sight of the people, like God's making some concession to their need to get a glimpse of God. This is where God's going to make a covenant with them, give them the law that will help them live together outside of Egypt, help them to know what to do, now that their every move isn't dictated by a tyrant. Which seems great, beautiful. They need a more creative and loving and beautiful way to live that will not be like making bricks to build an empire. But this place where this glimpse and this covenant is going to happen... The mountain that where God is going to be, it's like some terrible, scary, frightening, volcanic, like you're in some Japanese horror film. The whole scene is wrapped in smoke and clouds, and God, when God comes down, will be a consuming fire. That's scary language. And the people are invited to glimpse this thing, But there's all this preparation about securing the boundary around the mountain where God will come. And if the people even touch the border of the mountain where God is, God warns, the text says, they'll be stoned or shot. It's like police barricades and someone with a megaphone. Do not touch the border. If you touch the border, you will be stoned and shot. People, do not touch the border. 
see how this might not have been the kind of thing that the people were looking for, to ease their anxiety and to build their trust. Jeez. This God that led them out of Egypt, they don't trust him. And it's really not very hard to understand why. They're afraid of God. Meanwhile, the calf, I mean, can you really blame the people for enjoying the calf? It's a statue of a young cow, and it's not threatening to eat them. It seems so nice and fun and fertility. Calves were symbols of fertility. It just seems like a picnic, green and fertile, people laying down blankets in the grass, no megaphones or barricades. The text says that the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play around the calf. I mean, who can really blame them for enjoying the moment? It kind of seems like it's the first time they've ever really even relaxed since getting out of Egypt and had a party. They have something they can see and touch. The text in several places stresses that they are enjoying themselves. They need to dance a little. Yeah, it's an inert cow statue. It's dead gold that at the moment is bringing this out in them. Yeah, it's a little false and a little bit hollow. It's not a living, creative, loving creator, but still, it's not threatening to shoot them. They seem passionate and desirous and alive. They finally quit complaining about their hunger and their thirst, and they're caught up in some sort of moment of ecstasy. And during that time, Moses and God are up on the mountain, ironing out what I have to say. It's such a detailed description of the minutest things about the building of the tabernacle and is so monotonous to read. I can barely read it, actually. Every thus and thus and so and so and who should do what and every material and every measurement is gone over, I swear, more than one time. It practically seems like it must be a joke. And then finally God finishes writing all this, It's not clear on these stone tablets. And then God looks down the mountain at the people that are dancing around the calf. And this looks like they're having a very much less monotonous time. And God feels bad. The ancient rabbis really stress what God, that God does seem to feel here. There's this midrash that became very influential that Rabbi Ulai wrote that describes this as a heartbreaking scene, comparing the people to a bride who, while still sitting under her wedding canopy, is unfaithful to her betrothed. While still under the wedding canopy, she desires another lover. So God's on the mountain negotiating the terms of the marriage while the people are at the foot of it dancing ecstatically with another lover. I like the Midrash because it digs so deeply into this sort of like emotional part of it. Whoever God is, God is not impervious, set apart with some godlike remove, self-contained, self-sufficient, parsing the law objectively, some sort of Norwegian fantasy of stoicism. The people have broken law 1.1, thus the people receive punishment, A, B, 2. Instead, there's this sense of emotional violation. 
The bride desires an other at the moment of commitment. God's heart was broken. God says to Moses, the people have turned away quickly from the covenant we made. They've made themselves a molten calf, and they're bowing down to it, saying this is their God who brought them out of Egypt. That would be very painful. God seems to feel rage. So there's great sense of infidelity. You expect God in this rage to call them, I don't know, loose, debauched, reckless, rash, whores, whatever, wanton, unrestrained. But kind of surprisingly, instead, God accuses them of being too rigid. I see that this is a stiff-necked people. Like, they aren't too loose, they're too rigid. It's a surprising characterization. Maybe they think their idolatry is all about them being open to new gods, new experiences, new joys, but God seems to see that that's not quite right. They've betrayed God, not for some exciting new lover, but to cling to the lifeless gods of their slavery. A statue of a calf, an idol. They're more frigid than open. God wants to give them real love. But all God gets is the back of their stiff necks, hardened against him. And this is how they've been in the desert, really. God feeds them, and they take the food, but they stick out their hands and look away. They would never let God put it into their mouths. They're stuck in some old way of seeing and doing and being. Like, there hasn't even been an exodus from Egypt. Like, all they know of God is statues and tyrants, Pharaoh and the golden calf. They don't have the imagination yet for a living, loving God that can be trusted. They they edge in and out of this all during the 40 years in the wilderness, the entire sojourn they don't know. They claim every now and then that God hates them. God promised them liberation only to lead them into the wilderness where God will kill them. They can't imagine the love of God. They'll need entirely new categories for this. Or not categories. Categories won't do. It might take a lifetime or several or eternity to fathom the love of God. This is just the beginning of the story. They believe they were lured into hope. They believe they were lured into an illusion that redemption was possible. And they're not feeling it. They think God hates them. It could be that they hate God a little. It could be that they don't really like who God is, all hidden and enigmatic. And maybe they don't even like a liberator, freedom. They think God hates them, but maybe they're projecting their hate onto God. And maybe a little bit of that leaked out even in these writings. The evil consuming fire that says if they touch the border, they'll be stoned or shot. But it's hard to shed the traces of tyranny. It's not that easy learning who God is. There were generations and generations and generations of slaves to the empire. The powerful 
controlled the people's lives. Their imaginations have been stunted. Who is God? When Zizek, a Slovenian philosopher who you might know, spoke at Wall Street like last Tuesday, he talked about the difficulty of being free, of getting free, and I liked it, so I'm going to quote him extensively. I'm sorry. He said, in April, the Chinese government prohibited on TV and films and in novels all stories that contain alternate reality or time travel. And he said, this is a good sign for China because it means that the people still dream about alternatives. So you have to prohibit this dream. But here in the U.S., we don't think of prohibition because the ruling system has suppressed our capacity to even imagine. Look at the movies we see all the time. It's easy to imagine the end of the world, an asteroid destroying life, but you can't imagine the end of capitalism. You can't imagine an alternative. This is how we live, he says. We have all the so-called freedoms we want if you can call choosing from various products freedom, if you can call watching women exploited freedom, if you can call deregulation freedom. But what we're missing is a language to articulate our non-freedom. The way we're taught in this country to speak about freedom falsifies freedom. But he's celebrating this moment, and he says... We are allowed to think about alternatives. And he ends by saying, don't be afraid to really want what you desire. The Israelites didn't know what they desired. It's a process to discover. They think the alternative is a statue, a golden calf. The people don't trust God yet. And they're not really very open to God's advances. They're confused about how to be good lovers. They're blundering lovers. But I kind of get the feeling that maybe God isn't quite sure how to proceed in the relationship either. God actually seems to be a bit of a blundering lover throughout these texts. At moments, God seems gracious and tender. And at moments, Moses even says he could be perceived as doing evil. When God sees the people enjoying the calf, God's jealous. And he acts like, these aren't even my people, practically immature. He says to Moses, my wrath is burning hot. I'm just going to kill them. And then you and me, Moses, we'll start a whole new good people without them. But if God ever truly loved the people, there's something about that stance that seems false. Moses blows my mind in this text. He's been reluctant from the beginning to be in the position he's in, the go-between between God and God's people. He didn't want the position because he said, I'm not a good talker. But he does seem brave or stalwart or something, trudging back and forth, crossing boundaries left and right. He's the only one allowed past the police barricades. He climbs the pathway through the thick, darkness up Sinai, up through the dark clouds and the smoke and the confusion, and he gets right up next to the consuming fire, and he stays there for 40 days, 
In 40 nights, can you imagine? I'm not saying that he got comfortable with God, but you really do get the feeling that the two of us have established some sort of intimacy. Moses certainly gets to the point where he's not afraid to talk back to God and to question God. Why, Moses asks, are you angry with the people that you freed? Rabbi Abahu said, if this were not written in the text, it would be impossible. Such audacity. It's almost like Moses is trying to coach God, who seems a little petulant, through the relationship. Don't act out of anger. Remember your promise. Remember love. Because you're a little bit on the edge of looking evil here. But God's really opening it up, too, this space for a God that is neither a tyrant nor a statue. God says, let me alone that my wrath may burn against them. As if this is only possible if God is alone. Maybe he hopes that Moses won't leave him alone. Maybe God doesn't actually want to be left alone. That's what got God upset in the first place. The people left their covenant with God to enjoy the calf. Moses pleads with God, don't turn away from your covenant. These are your people. Like Moses believes in the covenant, though everyone else in the story at the moment is willing to let it go. But Moses shows some sort of incredible imagination. And maybe it's because he learned something up on the mountain with the fire and the dark and the clouds, something about God's love and God's mercy, and he's calling it out now. Maybe God hoped he would, needed him, his best man reminding him of his love in spite of his hurt. Maybe God really does love the people, deeply and passionately. And this whole scene demonstrates the possibility of a God that is completely other than a tyrant or a statue. A God who is vulnerable. A God who feels. A God who invites relationship. God desires God's people. They desire the calf, they think. God feels it. Moses presses for his desire. And God is deeply affected. And the covenant between God and God's people somehow endures through the mess of anger and hurt and passion. And the story goes on and on. And there are all sorts of mistakes made. Violence done, people are killed, God is abandoned, the poor are neglected, people are hungry. And this barely seems like enough. And I don't even know, but maybe it does open us up somehow to receive the love, even if we can't fathom it. 